Um, so I guess the first thing we'll talk about is, you know, the role of a CTO and what does it mean to the company and, and talk about within your organizations the scope of it and how it interacts with the different parts of things. Yeah, so for me, I'll go first. Sure. <laughs> I'm looking at you. <laughs> for me, uh, we are still a small company and, and young, right? So my, my role, as uh, Nabil said, we are less than two years old. So last, a year and a half ago, I was like at the computer programming all day long. That was my role there, write all the code that I could in uh, as many hours as I could during the day. Uh, changed a lot. Uh, very quickly it turned into like recruiting a lot and still coding at the same time. Same amount of coding, a lot more responsibilities. Uh, I also did like accounting, I did HR, I did offers, I, I did everything that, that I could do. Today it's way more into getting, like enabling people, making sure that the engineering team is efficient. It's, it's, we're growing fast. Uh, we had five engineers 12 months ago. We have 20 today and making sure that all the people that are coming is efficient and, and is, is getting to the culture that we want them to, to be, be entrepreneurial, getting and uh, be go-getters, but also have all the, 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 the information that they need available to, to get their jobs and be efficient. I, I think one of the things that you'll learn probably through the panel is that there are very different types of CTOs. Uh, I'm in the very fortunate position where unlike Marcelo, who spent a lot of time coding and then worked his way out of it, um, I very explicitly started at Encircle not as the most technical person. Uh, in fact, uh, everyone would argue I'm the least technical person. Um, I don't have access to production. They don't trust me with production. Um, uh, and but So I came into an environment where I had two technical co-founders of the company who were already there and who kind of came to the realization on their own uh, with, and frankly, a great amount of maturity on their own part because they're quite young, uh, to say, hey, I, I want to go back to doing uh, great work and doing individual work and writing code and everything else, and you can take on the, quote, shit work of managing people, recruiting, building a team, building processes, all those different things that go into growing and scaling a company. Uh, and so my job is totally different than your kind of traditional CTO and that I'm still responsible for product, whether it's chief product officer or whatever, um, but did weird things like customer support, did all of those pieces from scratch until we could build up teams to, to do that. So just a, a totally different approach. And I guess to riff off you as well, just in terms of our different experience coming to, I had no experience in terms of coming into the role and growing with it, right? I, started Bonfire a year after graduating university, so I had barely written any web code in general and had to learn and figure it all out and own everything that was technical and not selling the product, basically. And that's continued to build and learn and abstract away functions of the business that are kind of originally in my realm around anything technical um, or not basically sales and marketing, so including support. Yeah, I did that for about yeah. four years. Um, and, uh, and today it's just continued levels of abstraction and really getting into enabling people and being a strong leader within the organization to set, you know, to the, some of the parts is more, or whatever the expression is, one plus one equals three kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah, more than all. <laughs> Anyways, yeah. Um, so maybe um, do you see the roles changing over time? What do you think you're going to do next year? Like largely, is it a static role, fixed role? We've, we've heard. The roles can be defined differently depending on who you are and is it static within the organization? Has it been in the past? Do you see it in the future? Even maybe at pre previous companies where you've been as well? Yeah, definitely 
I, it's very hard to say what I'm going to be doing <laughs> next year. <laughs> uh, definitely, definitely. Next year? That guy there will want me to, but <laughs> <laughs> I don't think so. Uh, it's it's already very hard. I, I still do a little bit, but it's it's hard to to, to do it. I, I have time blocked on my calendar for coding, and uh, everybody knows that's the time they can take. It's like up for grabs. <laughs> so next year, it's probably going to be a lot, uh, same on, on the side of enabling the engineers to be productive, but a lot more on the long-term vision of the technology at the company. I think uh, a big part of the role is being up to date with technology and making sure that we are making the right choices because as we grow fast and as you move fast, the things that you, the tools that you pick, it's not easy to change, right? So you have to be sure that you're picking the right things. And that, that means like also being in constant contact with people in the community. Like I meet with a lot of people, I meet with a lot of other technical leaders and people that are actually on the trench doing the work to make sure that I, I know what's coming up, what's the new things that are, that are available and which are the ones that make sense for us to use. You go next. Um, well, I, I, I mean, I've always been what the company needs me to be, right? And so right from the start, it's like, okay, you got to figure this stuff out. And just having the building those skills, right, the being formidable and just kind of being able to rise to that challenge. So where I see myself going next, if we continue the trajectory we are on, is continuing down to abstract out all the knowledge that I have in the last six years of the business, which I mean, people still need me for that because half our team joined in the last eight months, right? It's crazy when you think about it in terms of people are still just hitting their stride. So um, people not needing to come to me to know, you know why we do something legacy stuff in the system, being further out in terms of uh, thinking on a longer horizon, getting out into the community, or not necessarily this community, but into our market and meeting more with uh, customers and thinking about the future of where we can go and improving procurement as a whole. So right now it's very inward looking and in the future it's definitely going to be more outward looking. I think part of what skews the answer, which is at least important for people to understand, is all of us are venture funded companies. Um, and so there's an implied level of growth that goes with being venture funded. Um, and so what you're hearing as part of the symptoms of that is I did this and now I have to do something else and something else because the company has to grow. Um, uh, to continue to, to not just justify the valuation and the investment, all those things. Obviously, that's why you took money because you were trying to build a, an epic and big company that's going to kick ass. But the other side of it is that you are going to constantly fire yourself from those jobs that you were doing because they were no longer necessary, right? Someone else has come in, you figured it out, it's systematized and, and so on. Um, and so I, I look ahead to that next year, very similar to my colleagues, I'll be doing different things. Um, you know, we'll, we'll have probably a VP of engineering in place who manages the development team directly instead of me doing it. I'll be spending a lot more time on intellectual property and patents and building a war chest against the competitors that are inevitably coming and a lot more strategy, those types of things and being less so the, you know, I don't have to be the, are we building the right technologies? Thankfully, I've got really smart people who are better at answering those questions than I am. Um, but the flip side is it, it's, it's just understanding where you complement the other people in the organization, right? So if you're really technical, then you hire people who do the other things to complement where you're at and vice versa. Um, and I think that's why you see these evolution of these roles um, so dramatically different is because you're just matching what other skills exist in the organization. So this is loaded, but I know last year, and unfair, <laughs> last year you spent, you took
three uh, calls from customers in uh, Australia um, on Christmas Eve. How many calls do you expect to take this year? <laughs> so unfair because Ronick is the co-founder of EntCircle. Um, uh, and uh, zero. Uh, I will take zero calls on Christmas Eve. I don't even, I don't even get support calls anymore at all. Um, and so, but that's a, that's, you know, a very dramatic change. I literally was the only support person who did anything uh, for the entire company up until March. We hired the first person who could answer calls because it was taking about 40 to 50% of my time just doing support. Learned a lot from our customers, but uh, the, it was a law of diminishing returns. But um, great question, Ronnie. <laughs> <laughs> um, so talk about uh, the role with regard to evangelism in terms of internal technical evangelism and, and you know, solution evangelism, and how does that play and, and whether or not that plays in, in you know, your hat with regard to your... Uh, Sure, I'll go first this time. Um, this is a big thing for me personally, and I, I think what has helped me be successful in what we do is personal integrity is just huge, right? And, you know, it's early stages when we were just two people as a business and Corey being able to be like, you got this? And I'm like, I got this. and I'm going to take care of it and get it done and figure out what needs to be done the whole way through. And so now when I think about, like, evangelism within the organization, it's exemplifying that on a like consistent daily basis the whole way through right it's like doing the right thing when no one's looking because i need my engineers to do that right to not cut corners even though i'm tired i want to go home or this would be easier to do that right and setting everybody like it's i mean i guess it's kind of a lead by example but it's really just pushing that through and explicitly talking about that as we're building leaders in our organization and trying to build uh, a company where that is just an innate thing that everybody is really thinking about and it's it's one of those maybe you know not highly technical not like this uh, profound thing but it's so important and so easy to just gloss over thinking about those kinds of things and building that in everybody at the team yeah it's uh, so I would say uh, I spent a lot of if I'm doing evangelism internally I would I would spend a lot of time on culture uh, I would spend a time reinforcing a translation of what sales and marketing is doing or thinking um, so that we have kind of lockstep as much as possible in the different languages that people would use internally because um, technical people speak a different language than sales and marketing uh, from my experience um, and I think you know I, you know I spend a lot of time out in the community as well um, and and then part of that is, is talking about Encircle and doing things like this which are good for the community and part of it is also just meeting with other technical leaders and other people, making sure that we're not building things in silos or thinking in silos and so on. Um, it's, there's a lot of lessons that can be learned from other people. Yeah. So for me, <clears throat> a big thing is really like coming from Google and Square and like seeing a lot of uh, uh, engineers throughout my career. It's very clear that there is like a, a top five percent that's outstanding and. We try, of course, every company tries to find those people, and that's the people we want to hire. But even at that level, there is coaching. And there are people that are not there, but they have all that it needs to take to get there. And it's, I, I spend a lot of time thinking, how do we help people get there? Right? I, I was talking to Jesse this week about this, and it's like, Jesse, see this, all these people, they're super smart. They know computer science. They, they, know, they have everything that it takes. But there are things that we do on a day-to-day that uh, make a huge difference on that. And 
getting people to learn those things and, and get very proficient at it is, is I think, big thing for me on evangelism. So one thing that I have been doing and I started recently is like every new hire, we are, I, I spend time coding with them. So I have an hour every week or so with them sitting at the computer doing the same work that they do and sometimes showing them how I would do it and sometimes just watching how they do it. Again, trying to get everybody to the top uh, as fast as possible. Uh, other than that, it's, it's again, there is the hard part of the evangelism as well, which is we hire all these smart people and some of them, they want to, to use new things. They want to use the coolest technology and a lot of these things are not proven yet. So part of it is also holding them back. It's like, uh, and, and that's the hardest part. It's like, uh, it's this new technology is very cool, but uh, we cannot be the guinea pigs for it, right? Uh, let's let it mature a little bit. Let's build other things. And if we do all the other things properly, we will have a chance to, to try it or, or find opportunities to try it on things that are not uh, uh, very relevant or that will not uh, block uh, improvements to the user experience. How much of the role of CTO is psychological versus technical, whether that's psychological to investors or psychological to your staff? Like you build confidence or you build you know, to credibility or something like that? I, I mean, I think it's, it's a huge component in any, the higher you go in terms of any form of leadership, right? Like early on when you're a small team and maybe you're hiring some folks that you know, right? It's, you don't have to exude that, right? But as you were now a 90 person organization and you know, you, yeah, it's, it's a huge component of that. And I don't, but it's also with that, it's like, I don't have all the answers. To, I mean, right? Uh, I don't know, actually, to be honest. I mean, um, Stack Overflow well, I mean, I, I, I guess my, my claim to fame and what pushed me there early on is like I was in the military for a few years, so you learn pretty damn quick kind of thing to how to be formidable that way. So go join the Army, I guess. No. <laughs> I, so my answer would be I, I think that it, the, so you say psychological, I would say your success is directly related to a level of kind of emotional IQ, right, or EQ or whatever, um, because there are, there are, you, you aren't there to correct. You're there to correct when it's really small and you spend a lot of a disproportionate amount of time with a small number of people. But as that gets larger and larger, then what you see now are symptoms. And so now you're trying to figure out what is the symptom of that? What's causing that behavior? Why is that occurring? Is that a cultural thing? Is that whatever? How do we fix that, right? Um, and, and so if, if you don't have some of those skills to even see that that's a problem, then you're, you're kind of you know, fighting with one hand behind your back. Yeah, I, I agree with, uh, with him. The higher up you get in any organization, EQ gets to be very important. It's, I think it's the hardest part for a CTO, if, if, if you are a technical CTO, which is a lot of the CTOs are out there, which you, you are on this IC ladder in a company like Google and you get to a level where you have to be good with people. It's not optional. You can't just hide in an office and write code anymore. Uh, but that becomes a challenge up, up high because you do have to deal with a lot of other things, right? It's uh, uh, yeah. not optional. You have to do it. Yeah, I kind of view the, the CTO role as a bit of a high priest, the technical high priest. And as a priest, you need to inspire and give everyone the confidence to do, uh, to do what they need to do, uh, as opposed to doing it yourself eventually, which is kind of interesting. 
Uh, so maybe we can, is there another question? Yeah. in the company, one of the most important things that I do is to be one side of a balance uh, on the, when we're building a product. So my, my base view of the CTO role here, and the most important thing for me, like so the way I measure success is that I never want to be, I never want engineering to be a bottleneck, a bottleneck in the company, right? So I want the product and our CEO and our team to, to be able to think and dream as big as they can. And we have to translate that and deliver that as fast as possible, but we also have to balance that. So we, are, we, we bring them back to reality, not only deliver anything that they want, but our job is to trim it down, scope it down, and teach them like, why some of the things can be done and some of the things can be done. Uh, and together we interact a lot and we have this very healthy balance. And by having this balance and having good people on the product side and on the engineering side as well, and this is not only me as CTO, I, I want my whole team to be able to do that, to fight back with product, like a healthy fight, to tell them what is possible and what's not possible and what we can change to make it easier and simpler while delivering the same value to the users. Um, so maybe uh, another discussion point would be, you know, the, we, we alluded a bit about the short-term, long-term, battle and never, you know, the balance between the two and, and how do you struggle with that? The battle between... The short-term decisions, short-term yeah. implications, short-term objectives, long-term objectives. I, so the, I, it was my turn to go yeah, first, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> nailed it on this question. So the, uh, the way I think about it is that when you're super early stage, um, you're heavily, you have like constraints, right? And you'll always have constraints, but your primary mode of thinking is constraint, right? Like I don't have enough money or I don't have enough people. I, I don't have enough. I don't have enough. And then there's this phase that your organization goes through where I, you have to switch to what I call like a surplus mindset. Um, and because you're growing so fast, things are changing so quickly, the revenue numbers are changing that if you think in that scarcity mindset, you'll, you'll actually starve your company. Um, and, and that's where a lot of people struggle to make that transition um, because they don't know when it is and it always happens earlier than you think it will. It's not like, wow, we were profitable, we had millions of dollars in the bank, now I should go and have this wonderful uh, surplus mentality. And then people actually will fight it um, because there's a whole bunch of downstream things that happen when you, when you make that shift. Um, and so uh, that's how I've kind of managed that um, for me and, and making that transition and, and thinking more holistically about it. Yeah, just I agree with a lot of that. And uh, another big part, I think, too, is 
there's a cost both ways, not just in, oh, there's this, the scarcity and I don't have it, but even early on, your inability to act or, or the opportunity cost of not doing something and not taking a risk and, and jumping in because, um, yeah, I mean, especially in the early, early days where you might just have to take that risk and go or, or, or not, right? It, it kind of cuts both ways around opportunity cost of either showing up, uh, you know, saying, okay, well, I'm not going to this meeting when, when early because it's not like internally, but like with a customer, right? It's just our CEO is going to go. So there's a huge opportunity cost for me to, for us to go because then no one's writing code. But uh, maybe it also sometimes actually is the right thing to do uh, that way. So it's, it's not an answer on how you balance it. It's just more of an awareness that it, it doesn't, it goes both ways too, I think, really early on. Yeah, so for sure. Yeah. So we have a rule of uh, how, how, as a startup, <clears throat> everything is a priority, right? There, <laughs> everything you look at, you have priorities and you have a to-do list that never ends and everything is a priority. Picking the right things that are the real priority at the moment is, is the most uh, important decisions that you make. That's what makes company fail or, or succeed, in my opinion. Uh, now, we have this rule that we use on, on decisions because also you have to be making decisions, right? They have to be made. You can't, you can't pause and think and, and have meetings about it. So the main thing that we do on, on is things that we can change short term versus not. So if it's a decision that the answer right now matters, but it's easy to change, it's, we make the decision right away, and that helps a lot to move forward and have progress. The main rule is to always make sure that if the decision is hard to change and it's going to have implications for the long term, that will be very hard to change. That's when we should pause, take a step back, and uh, reconvene and discuss before we make a decision. That, that, that's how we balance it a little bit. Any other questions? Looking for content? <laughs> yeah, question? Yeah, uh, I can go first. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I have good opinions there. <laughs> that's, that's the thing I learned a lot with Jesse at Square. <laughs> uh, here's how we always manage like that at Square, and uh, that's how I, I learned to, to deal with it, and it's very efficient, and it's a way to really never have tech debt, which is we always have to make compromise, right? There will always be like an you have to deliver something and it's two weeks and you have to take shortcuts and it's fine to do that and that will, we just, we just have to be very mindful and uh, make a very well informed decision that that shortcut that you're taking is going to create some technical debt and the way we have always dealt with it is next time anybody talks that code for anything, simple improvement or simple change or a bug fix, we'll erase that tech debt and, and spend the proper time to do it so we'll never add tech debt on top of tech debt, and, and that way we'll usually never have it. The way I like to think about it a lot too is similar to a mortgage, right? It's hard to buy a house to save 500 grand or whatever, you know, straight up just to buy it all in cash. You need to get a mortgage, right? But you have a debt servicing ratio where the bank's willing to lend you and you got to pay it down and you have to, I think, approach it like that, especially early on, right? Because if you, that's probably like the biggest um, threat to you early on as someone being really technical and, and wanting to like write the perfect code, but it's like um, product's great, but no one's buying it, so company dies, right? So 
Yeah, I don't have much more to add to that. I, it, we, it's important enough to us that we dedicate a, a team to kind of dealing with things that we believe have kind of a high degree of certainty. We, I don't care what the matter what it's called. Anyway, so we have a team that does that generally, and and so then that everybody kind of rotates through that, which I think facilitates the idea that it's important enough that everybody should work on it. Um, and and same rules of if you touch code that's crappy, you should fix it. And you know, no big bang approaches to stuff. Generally, you try and fix the tech debt as you go. So it's like, oh, here's our new best practice. We installed a linter. We're not going to go back and fix all the linter errors for everything. But if you touch a file, then you should try and fix the ones around where you've been and so on. Yeah, it's like a you know continuous improvement. Like yeah. you, you know, recognize you are going to make compromises. That's gonna you're going to revise those decisions, and you as an organization have to know that you have to continuously invest to, to fix those old wounds. You can't leave it till later because it just makes it worse. So entropy only increases. You have to beat it down actively. Um. Yeah, and I think with a startup, especially early, you, it's a little bit of a gamble and a little bit of a race, right? And so. You know, when Microsoft Azure decides to reboot your database in the middle of a day in January and your system goes down for a while and you don't know why, you know, that's maybe we should have a backup system, <laughs> right? <laughs> so, you know, like, <laughs> yeah, just, just January. So, but the, you know, and you're like, well, I, that was really unpleasant. I don't want to do that again. We should hire someone to do that, right? So, you know, part of these are forcing functions that occur in the real world too. It's, it's the same with legacy code, right? It, they go hand in hand. It's like legacy code is a code that nobody wants to touch because nobody understands, which really means that it wasn't properly written to start with. Like if your code's properly tested and uh, properly documented, even if it's the documentation is just, is just the test, that's not legacy code. Nobody should ever be afraid of changing that, right? You, you can go there, you can make change. Either you're going to break tests or the tests are going to pass. Uh, and if that's the case, you can always safely do it and you'll never have legacy code. It's, yeah, when the developers are afraid, that's when you're afraid. Because if they're afraid to actually make a change, then there's, there's some serious problems. You've got to encourage the developers to do the right thing and keep doing the right thing. If that means refactoring, she'll be it. Do it. Sometimes it might delay features, uh, it might delay like bug fixes because you have a technical debt. Then do you make even more debt to try to fix the technical debt or do you absolutely just bunker down after fixing technical debt before you can do any more features and bug fixes? No, I'll, I'll give you a hint. <laughs> the product people usually have no idea how long engineering takes, right? So, <laughs> so like, first time they had a deadline, you had to make compromise, you delivered it. Next time there is a bug there, or there is a new feature, even if it's a small feature, the timeline increases. Like, because you're baking the time to, to fix it properly. And it's, even if they understand it, they will have to give you that opportunity. Because they understand that that's how engineering operates. Right? They, don't, they don't set the rules for us. We set the rules of engineering. They can ask for timelines, and we can give it to them. And if there's compromise, we'll agree to make a compromise. But in the end, if there is a bug fix that even though they will say it's a small bug, but we'll say last time it was, we had to take a shortcut and to fix this bug, now it's gonna take a, a longer time. 
that's how we operate, and it works well for us. I think expanding off earlier when you're saying you never want the comp engineering to be the bottleneck to why we can't do something, right? So that's what you hold in there, and that line and that authority to say, no, this bug fix requires two weeks, even though it's a small thing, and that's the end of it because you have your overriding large goal where it's like engineering can't be the bottleneck. And if we continue to just ship features and, and roll over, then we become a bottleneck and then the developers are afraid and then you can't get out of that. So, right? I, so. I, you know, I would say is, is don't say those words, tech debt, <laughs> uh, refactoring, those things, saying those to product people, they're saying, I don't want any of that, right? I'm not paying for that. That doesn't the add value. Is, to the, the, you can't decouple them, right? Doesn't add value to the users. Right? That's right. Until but everything it, breaks. That's right. That's right. <laughs> the point is, it's all part of you know the development process, just like writing code and test cases and unit unit tests and all that stuff. It's all part of it. And as the team gets bigger, the code gets better. You're going to redo some stuff, whatever that means, tech debt, whatever it is. It's just part of the job, and you got to be you got to embrace it. And as a team, because um, otherwise, if you just let it build. It, you know, without, be, without being checked continuously, it will limit your ability to actually service the business, and then there's bigger problems. Yep. Do you think development's gonna get easier or harder with better testing, better, better systems to, to test code, to write code, to write on top of their machine learning versus, versus individuals? Is it gonna get easier to, be, to, to develop the base code, or is it gonna get harder because the systems that you're building on top are going to get more complex. You guys are the CTOs. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I think, I think they, we, we can make it easier or harder on us. It depends on us. It's, it's, it's not, there is nothing that will happen in the future that will change that. If you follow good process and you have good first principles and you uh, have a good approach to how you write the code, doesn't matter if it's, the, 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 the real hard thing of writing good code is to simplify complex problems, right? So if you, doesn't matter how complex the end goal is, if you can take a small part of it, simplify it, and properly write that code with proper tests, that's always going to be easy. A small piece of code is always easy to change and to improve and to test. Uh, if you can always do that, it, it's always going to be easy. If you don't do that and you try to build something complex, even if it starts simple, as it gets complex and gets more complex, at some point you lose track of it and it becomes very hard. So it's, it's all on people. Yeah, so I would say, I would say- I'll take that answer. No, <laughs> that really good. The, as I thought about your question, Craig, because it's a good one, um, I would say it's not going to get easier and it's not because of the tools or the technologies or any of those things changing. The fundamental element is that it's humans who are doing the work. And, and so much of the work that, you know, that we do, like I look at the team every day, where they come and ask questions, they need help. It's not a tooling issue, it's not a technology, like sometimes it is, right? But generally it's a, well, like how often do we want to bug customers? And how much do we want to do this? And what does this mean? And, and, and it's even if you perfectly managed all of that, where your software is likely to get used is also by humans. Right, and so the, all of these elements are going to still change the fact that you won't get it right, and it'll always be changing and, and evolving and everything else. And it's a complex system, and it's getting bigger and more complex, more pieces, more moving pieces. So, you know, it always fails when not the things you don't anticipate. Right? It's Christmas Day, and whatever they, the database goes away, whatever. Right? So it's a, a complex system. So, yep. Uh, let's go the opposite direction. 
how many of you guys foster, let's say, psychological safety? In a sense that you want your engineers to be able to learn and fail, but not have to be like reprimanded, right? So how do you foster a culture and kind of like an environment for engineers to do their best and not afraid to kind of like not do their best because in a sense that they'll not do their best and they didn't know that bad things might happen, right? In that sense, psychological safety in a sense. How do you guys? Okay, can I go first this time? Well, I think he knows my yeah. answer already, oh, so. Oh, well then go. You, you no, he's on my team, so. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe he should give your answer. <laughs> Maybe, yeah. We should do blind answers, and then if ours are the same, then, then, then we're good, but if we're not, right. Um, so uh, I would say uh, t two things. Uh, the first is that we carry as a primary value in the company humility, um, and so when y you get a level of I'm going to help, I'm going to support, your default reaction should not be you're an idiot um, or an ass or whatever you know, kind of, you, know, you might refer to. Uh, I think the other side is that the way that we run the organization, um, at least mentally, uh, what I describe internally is, is an inverted pyramid. Uh, these guys have heard me already explain this, so I'll try and do it quickly. But the idea behind the invert, your normal pyramid structure for an organization is your top leader sits at the top, and then all these people are below them, and, and then you know, kind of the individual contributor, the people who do all the, the work, they sit at the very bottom. Um, and if you read, there's lots of really great books out there uh, today that talk about how great organizations have inverted that. The leader sits at the bottom. The job is really to hold up the organization. And the people who actually do the work are the most important people in the organization. And when you start to flip around the model and the thought process like that, um, and you actually say things like you know, those words internally, it changes the dynamic around people willing to take risks, people's willingness to try things that are new, to push, to because they realize that they're the most important people in the organization. So I, I, the way I want things to happen, <laughs> I, I don't want to have uninformed risk, right? I want people to be able to take risks, but informed risks. And that goes hand in hand with the culture, right? We want everybody that joins us, I want them to know that nobody knows everything, including me, of course, especially me. I want to learn from everybody. And uh, as you are, if you have that mentality of like you're always ready to learn and you know you don't know everything, you, and you are willing to take a task that you're not ready to make or to, you, you might, might be a challenge for you, you know you have the support. There is no shame or no risk into asking for help. Uh, so it, that's why I say it's an informed risk. You know that you might not be fully capable of it, but you're willing to take the challenge and you know you have the support to get it done. And when you put it, things that way, I don't see any risk coming out of that, right? Uh, they won't fail. They have the support to succeed. They, they might succeed on their own, which will be great, and they might need some help, and the company will always succeed. Um, my perspective, I mean, maybe, di maybe disagree or as we build through. I think part of it for our context is things are, can be a little bit different, right? Um, one of the things I think about is the, the Facebook move fast and break things mentality around stuff. And there's pros and cons to both. Like any, anything you value, there's obviously a trade-off. And so for us, you know, and, and our product and our markets to be a little bit of a counterbalance here, right? And what I've said tons of times is never break anything and figure out how to move as fast as possible in that environment. Because we're dealing with time-sensitive submissions for hundreds of millions of dollars that uh, a vendor's trying to sell some medical equipment to you know, all these hospitals across the province, right? So if that one thing breaks in that moment, even though it's like one out of like 100,000 requests, 
you know, that vendor doesn't get to submit, they miss out on the opportunity and they're coming after us kind of thing to say, well, there's a problem with your system. So, but paired with all of that, that attitude of never break anything but figure out how to move as fast as possible is in informed risk and it is building that culture where people should be able to challenge me, not just in engineering, and I try and build it as the company as a whole, right? Like literally every single new hire, it's not necessarily in the first week, but it's like I sit down and I have coffee with everybody, sport team, sales, marketing, doesn't matter. And we're on like a, well, the team's big now, so it's a rotating 270-day schedule. Um, just like that kind of worked. So I like go back and meet with everybody and go through and, and recognize it's like, it's easy to join a larger organization now. You know, we're 90 people and be like, again, like the kind of the inverted people pyramid putting people at the top around. It's like, I couldn't, I can't talk to that guy. He's, he knows everything. I don't have all the answers, right? And you should be able to come up and talk and surface ideas and challenge and build through with informed risk and, and kind of realizing that it's, it, what we're doing is super important and we need to make sure that primarily that the system is functioning and working and then figure out how to take risk and push forward uh, within that constraint of our environment. That's due to the nature of our product though, so. Yeah, so I think, I think it's a difference between, you know, a risk from the point of view of a feature, a function, technology, whatever your direction, and then there's reckless, right, which is, uh, screw the unit tests, I don't want to do that. Like that is just plain old recklessness, right? So there's a difference between the two. Yeah. Some things you tolerate and others you don't. <laughs> uh, any other questions? Yep. How do you deal with the, the mentality of what I call like crawl, walk, jog, run? The, the business side wants to sell more, go faster, and the product isn't quite evolved enough as you grow to you know, go from crawling to, to running. So I, yeah, I think it comes back to the original thesis of, you know, how do we set up the company and the technology and the engineering team so that it's never throttling the business? So it's like, you know, the, we have to anticipate the needs ahead of what's exactly being asked because we know as soon as we deliver that, there's a thing going on. So we have to be able to kind of bake in enough further, you know, architectural support capability, whatever, to be able to anticipate, um, which is tricky because it's investing long-term versus short-term a little bit and play that knife's edge, which is very difficult. Yeah, so our company started and we had zero software, but we, had, we, were, had, we were selling products, right? So uh, it has always been the case that uh, we were behind in engineering. We sold products manually in front of a person before we built a website where people could place orders. And then we went back to the office and we started building a website where people could place orders. And that was the evolution of the companies. From that day, uh, eventually, people would be able to place orders on the website, but we didn't have any integration with the people that were selling the product. So we would be on the phone calling the makers and being like, hey, we got an order for you. Are you willing to fulfill this order? And then bring them on the platform and then we build the automation. So what you're saying of the business being ahead has always been the case for us. And the way that we, the only way to deal with it in my view is, again, making sure the business people have a very good understanding of the engineering challenges. Uh, and, and negotiating with them, there is a constant negotiation between engineering and, and product. And as long as they understand the limitations and you give them a little bit of, of room to, to, to build things, you cut the edges, you trim it, you, you make the product uglier or simpler, 
you can deliver on what they want, and you keep evolving like that. So the way we operate is like that. We, we build something very simple, we ship it very fast, many times it works, and we evolve it, we enhance it, uh, and we keep circling back with product to improve it, and many times we ship something very fast, which is great, and it doesn't work, and we cut it off very quickly and go build something else. I would, it's just, I agree with everything that's been said. Um, I think one of the chief differences for us is that we have a really strong alignment on the sales side, that they're not selling things that don't exist. And that's a really easy trap for, especially as you transition out of the like crawl stage into I can walk. Um, there's a lot of really solid bad habits that can be formed that way. Um, and you can get you know, essentially a whole bunch of product debt, like backlog of things that have been promised that don't make sense or whatever. And so, you know, when we build forecasts for what we're going to sell this year and all those pieces, um, the expectation is that they're doing that entirely with what exists today, right? And obviously we expect some general lift from pieces we're going to add to the product and how we're going to change things, but there isn't this kind of do or die on a hill type of moment of if product doesn't deliver on this date at this time, everything is dead. Um, and, and so that creates, you know, again, some the healthy tension and all those other types of things of going like, I'm losing deals because we still don't have this. Reminder, reminder, right? Um, and so you just have to make sure that everybody still feels like everybody's invested and cares and still listening and we're working on it and all those different pieces. So, um, but it's a, just being very clear that we're not selling things that don't exist. Yeah, and I, I live that pain, selling things <laughs> that, do, that don't exist. Um, Still do, um, but I think that early on, it was the right move. Like Courier CEO would go out and be like, "Yeah, the platform can do this," and I would build it, and it would be done, and we got that next level, and you get that next check, and then we can go, we can justify, hey, we can raise around, you know, and all the stuff. So it's kind of early in the days when the giving the well, the authority, so to speak, to our kind of director of sales and our, our CEO, that was when there was a five of us, I mean, they had the authority, they could do it if they wanted, I guess, to a certain degree, and I didn't have a choice, but um, to go out there and make those calls, but, but because they, we had a really tight, intimate knowledge of what was potentially possible, right, in terms of what I could actually get done and build, being the only developer, you know, for three years, um, to now when the span of control is too wide, right, like you can't, it has to be shut down, right, like we battle with that and we're trying to deal with that and the insatiable appetite for what's next, what's next versus selling what's on the cart kind of thing. And being extremely deliberate for me personally as we grow out, um, I never say I'm going to do something unless I'm going to do it. So you can take my word to the bank when I say, yep, we're going to put this in the platform kind of thing. But there isn't a roadmap out to sales for all that stuff, like putting that thing on a hill and then I was selling that the whole way out and through because you just create that problem and it just gets harder with a team of 18 sales folks, right? And, and CSMs the whole way through and uh, supporting customers have and want all the incremental improvements to the platform. So yeah, it was the right call early on, I think for us, but now it's, yeah, you gotta really lock that down, so. I'm uh, just kind of curious as to everyone's thoughts on when a, a CTO should be involved in the recruiting process of um, you know, hiring and scaling, and you know how much of the time is spent recruiting. Um, you know, just kind of thoughts on that. 
<laughs> we all look at Marcel. 100%. Let's go to the middle. Let's start in the middle. He's the recruiter. Go. Jeff is the recruiter for Fairbanks. He's the recruiter for his company. Self-serving company here. Oh, I, I can jump in here first. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I did it early on, right? I, anybody hired in engineering, our first, first dev through all the way until I was running the entire recruiting process until we brought out the engineering team to about 10 people, uh, I think, in total. And at that point, this, it wasn't just the engineering, right? It was the whole company. The rate we wanted to grow at is we brought on one and then two full-time recruiters like in the business. But I was still very early involved. But the way in which I was involved and continue to be involved is actually in the front end of the process before candidates go to take time from my team. So uh, the way in which kind of we do it is this the, you know, talk to recruiters, you got like a you know, 30 minutes phone screen, they'll help, so I'm not looking through, sifting through resumes the whole way through, getting a list of like, okay, here's where I wanna to drill down on, and say, okay, yep, a couple of people look, let's, let's go to an interview with Alex. This is like a walk the walk, um, or talk the talk interview, right? So I'm talking more pitching about our company, it's like the evangelism to them, and seeing do they fit with what we want in terms of our, our values and how we build, and, and kind of telling them it's a two-way street, right, this interview process. I, I want to know whether you've got the skills to join the team, but I want you to know the whole way through, is this the right role for you? Is this, is this the company for you? All that kind of stuff. And then if they go through that for me, then they go to our engineering team and we've got like kind of a coding assignment take-home thing and I take the time from the engineers to try to shield them to focus on what they can uniquely do and I can't do. Like I can't just jump on and, and help write out, crush, crush out features but they can do that. I can be what, like, be what the business needs me to be. And so I was doing that for about a year ago, for almost a year. And I think you're living that right now to a certain extent. And that will change over time. So, yeah. Yeah, so <clears throat> I spent a lot of time recruiting. Uh, initially, we were five people started up and nobody knew about us. And we didn't know if we were building something that would be successful or not. We had hopes, of course, and we were very optimistic. Uh, so it was always like a battle to sell people to come join us, right? Come join this company that just started. So I was doing a lot of that. Uh, and, but we weren't recruiting a lot, so it didn't take a lot of my time to do that. It was a meeting a week or so. Uh, recently, when we finally got into a position, the business where unit economics is good, we have product market fit, we're scaling fast, uh, we need to grow the team fast. Uh, I spend a lot of time recruiting. It's, I, and there are reasons for that. Mostly, first of all, because I care a lot about who's going to be joining us. I usually talk to them first and last. And I always do one of the technical interviews with all of the uh, engineers that will be joining us. And of course, I also interview everybody who joined the company at a leadership level. And for a long time, I actually interviewed everybody who joined the company up until we were 40 people. Uh, the other thing that I think is very important on my role uh, related to recruiting is training the team on how to properly interview and how to decide who are the people who should be joining us or not. So that's another thing that's an objective for me and for the engineer organization is for everybody to get up to speed with how we do interviews and how we select the people that should be joining us. 
Uh, yeah, because again, my background, I, I do, I'm responsible for all the recruiting. Um, we were, I would say, unsuccessful in, we, we divide roles on the, on, our, on the engineering team specifically into junior developers and kind of senior developers. And, and like everybody in town, I think right now, recruiting senior developers is, is really hard. Um, uh, and so we went kind of an extra step and actually hired external uh, recruiters. So we decided not to bring that in-house, but to try the uh, external route, a slightly different approach where we don't pay as a percentage, but we kind of essentially have them as kind of almost like fractional recruiters. Um, uh, and, you know, just trying to think different things to try and solve the problem. Uh, but right now it's, uh, we hired 10 people in the last three or four weeks. So uh, three or four weeks ago was 60% of my time. Right now it's just more onboarding and helping in that front. But uh, it's that people element, recruiting, managing, all those things is easily 60, 70% of my time, easily. This question is for you, Marcel. How do you manage the, the team risk? Sorry? The team risk. How do you manage your team risk? The team risk? The team risk? Yeah. So what, what do you mean exactly by the team risk? Like, uh, let's say you're working with this guy, and he's the only person working on this feature. And um, he didn't show up today. Uh, what do you do? Like, or probably two days, he didn't show up. Uh, well, how, do you manage that? <laughs> how do you manage that, that job is get, yeah, get done? Well, I, I guess we luckily haven't had that happen. But <laughs> Avoid buses. <laughs> Avoid buses, airplanes. Uh, no, the way, the way is like everybody has to be familiar with everything, right? And of course, sometimes it's easy to say that, and it's, of course, harder to put in practice. But the way we have operated as a company, which I don't know how smaller startups operate, but we, we did it because that's how we knew how to do things uh, from our past experience. From day zero, it was me and my other co-founder writing code, and we were doing code reviews from each other. Like nothing ever got merged without an approval from somebody else, and that's still how things are in the team. So ever change that goes into the code base needs somebody else to read, understand it, possibly ask for a change and uh, finally approve it. Uh, so that way at least you have at least one more person who is very familiar with that code base or with the code that's being written. But certainly at the size of certain companies, when you're starting, you're gonna, I like to say, you know, you're walking the tightrope, there's no net. Just recognize there's no net. Yeah and live with that and move on, uh, but obviously get as many people familiar with parts of the code so that you can, with some difficulty, move people around because it's not going to be seamless. Um, One, I mean, just talking about it too, early on, I remember it was me, only me for the longest time, and then me and one other dev, and it was like Friday night, it's like being in constant communication. It's like, I'm going out for some drinks. Are you going to be of a sound mind in case the servers go down or something like that? It's like, yeah. Um, you can't both be drugged. Or, well, yeah, basically. <laughs> right. But it's other things as well, too. I spent like three years making sure I was always within 30 minutes of my laptop and an internet connection. Yeah, we did that, too. We always have our laptops with us. Totally, right? <laughs> Me and right? my co-founder always have our laptops. But it's like, you know, it's like, okay, we're going to see my aunt or whatever for dinner in Etobicoke. It's like my laptop's coming with me, and it's like it's in the car. It's like it's there, and I pay for a big data plan in case I need to go on and, you know, and, and have that. But it's like, yeah, it's, it's just not having, like, a single point of failure, but it's just that for a long time you might be the single point of failure, so. Yeah, a lot, a yeah. lot of pros and cons of not having access to production. Yeah, there you go. You, <laughs> you just you duck the question. Uh, 
a lot, a lot of it was it, this was much more aggravated at Square when we were building Square Cash with Jesse and Daniele was my co-founder was there as well. We built with a very small team. We built this product that was moving billions of dollars and like growing fast. And there were five engineers, right? So every time we were on call, it's like uh, something goes wrong here. Money's going to stop moving. Somebody has to be always ready to 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 get on the computer and fix something. So we, we kind of got used to that. <laughs> Every week somebody was responsible for it, was on call, and there were occasions, not too often luckily, that we had to wake up at 3, 4 a.m. and spend two, three hours fixing things because payments were not going through. Just still suffering. <laughs> so in my experience, um, an engineer sort of exists uh, in a default state in a in an individual bubble, or to some extent, you know, in a, in a team, and so I'm wondering if, if you concern yourself with the flow of knowledge and information um, between your between your engineers, and if so, how do you do that? Uh, yes. Uh, so uh, we do a weekly meeting every week where uh, I'm very transparent about everything I've learned about the crazy people that are marketing sales over the course of the week and I download that into my team so that they know how the business is going and, and how that, that works and then we literally go around the, the team and they'll all give updates. Um, that's an important part, but the other side is that we very, we've taken the very deliberate approach of breaking the teams up into smaller teams. Um, so they're all kind of essentially ideally in kind of three person teams. Uh, and that's created an environment where um, you can kind of like, you, you, get iso you get a less isolation, but when they are, they're doing their own thing and then someone can speak for that group uh, on what's happening and it tends to be a, a good balance as we grow so far. Yeah, I think for us it's been, again, size of team and what we can do, but trying as much as possible to avoid putting somebody on a project by themselves for a long period of time, right? It's, okay, at least, okay, maybe I'm the main dev, but you know, code quality, obviously there's code review, so I'm getting fractional time from somebody else, but to just not put people in those situations and force that cross-pollination and move people in and out and around. Um, so, yeah. Yeah, so I, I think this changed a lot from the size of the company. Very small companies, everybody knows everything. It's one code base, uh, it's easy to solve that problem. As you start to scale, like we are in an interesting phase right now where we're starting to have more ownership across parts of the code. Some people have been more consistently working on the same pieces and they kind of are the expert in that area. And it, yeah, it would be a little bit scarier if they disappear. Uh, and then you get to a much larger scale like Google and the way they operate is there's owners of is much smaller pieces of the code, right? So there is a small part of the code. They actually have an owner's file there that identifies the people that makes change there more often, and they're the ones who should approve any change in those things, and that's how you, you create this knowledge and uh, ownership uh, to be spread. <laughs> oh, there. We'll go before we'll start there. One, two, three. Three questions left. Uh, how do you manage conflict between two engineers, especially in the first days of the company? Like, you have to take a decision, and two engineers, one thing you should go one way, the other thing should go the other way, and they're really sure about it, and you have to manage that. 
Well, in the first days of the company, it was me and my co-founder only, so <laughs> we had worked well for a long time together before we started the company. Uh, we trusted each other a lot, and we knew what we were best at, so if it was an area that I was better at, he would just follow me, and even if we disagreed, and if it was something that he was best, and usually the way that it really works, and that's how I think people have to evolve uh, into that. Uh, initially, when you're not as experienced, you have strong opinions, and you can't let go of them, and you'll be fighting for them, and it's not healthy. At some point, you get to a stage where you have to let go of your own uh, opinions and like trust the people that are working with you. And of course, there are consequences if they're wrong, and you have to be ready for that. But there, and there are cases where you are really, really strong about something, and you have the experience to back it up, and you can say, no, I am sure that what you're doing is wrong here, and we shouldn't do it. But in most cases, it comes down to like differences in opinions, and it's like, uh, your way works, my way works, they're different. You're the one doing it, you do it your way. Uh, we should just like really be strong about it if you really disagree. So I, I, as I said earlier, I try not to have legacy code. I have inherited, I have joined companies in the past that had a lot of legacy. The only way I know how to approach it is to like, you have to spend time, you have to understand the code, then you have to break it up. And uh, if it has, it, it's only legacy code, as I said earlier, if there is no test there. If there is, it's easy to change, it's easy to, to make improvements. So. The first thing is to try to add some tests, or at least test to the things that you're changing, right? Like if you're gonna change something, make sure you add a test that's not break, that's working, and then you change it, and it hopefully it's gonna keep working or, or work differently if you change some behavior there. Uh, he likes legacy code. Is that that's what that? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> likes getting rid of it. Like yeah. getting rid of it. I, I, I could yeah, talk for three hours about that. Actually, I. Highly recommend. Um, I implement getting things done. Process. David Allen. Um, I've been doing this for like three years now, and it's just this, and continuing to evolve and really get to that state where it's like I don't remember anything. This is not the brain is not for remembering things. You have systems that can augment yourself to do that. You organize, you put it in there, and you reserve all of your faculties for creative capacity. Unbelievable. Huge. It's just yeah. I, anyways, I'm not going to monopolize the few minutes we have left to talk about that, but find me after and we can talk about it. It goes that. really well with having been in the military and living a regimented lifestyle. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you have to shave your head as well. <laughs> Alan. All right, so imagine a future your, your companies are 500,000 people, engineering now a couple hundred, 300 people. How do you see your roles changing? Uh, I'll just start first. I'm going to kind of duck the question in the sense of I don't try to look on that horizon because it's not helpful for me. It's our whole life has been trying to increase your horizon for sure, and I'm not at that scale. You know, I'm thinking about next year and where we want to go and building our team. I'm not saying that's not helpful. It's just more of um, 
I need to think about the things I need to do to now to put me my, get myself on the trajectory to be in that position, and um, then I'll solve when I get there. So I know it's a bit of a lack of an answer, but uh, it's a it's a scale I don't e couldn't even imagine us being at right now. So it, it, because I'm I'm already if I'll argue non-technical CTO if that's such a thing. Um, uh, the uh, it becomes right now. I I manage uh, engineers directly, and then uh, design team and product team uh, with their own direct reports. It's easy to see how that becomes managers of managers, and then managers of managers of managers. And so, you know, in those types of environments, having worked through years and years at BlackBerry, you you become again as the high priest of here's where we're going, here's why we're doing the inspiration as much of of ensuring that you're still picking the right people and, and watching with EQ of all the dysfunction across your organization because it exists, whether you can see it or otherwise, and then you know spending a lot of time trying to fix it. So I think uh, the same way that today we are building this engineering team and like trying, my role is like to try to make sure we're using good practices, we are efficient, we have a good career path. If we had thousands of engineers, hundreds of thousands possibly, uh, the change would really be doing the same things from a level above. We have to be very metrics driven and like understand what's happening all the way through the organization and uh, dictate what are the objectives from the top to, to see where, where do you want the engineer, how do you want the engineer's team to behave and try to drive that behavior from the top. And, keep hiring the right, the right people at the top that will drive the right culture and behavior down. Which, again, it's very hard to imagine doing <laughs> from where we are today. Mark, last word on this question. Um, I think, you know, the roles change. Uh, and I think we've, we've talked about that as the roles change. And, and Alan's sort of forcing us to, th to think well beyond, let's say, where we, we've experienced. And as, you know, the roles get bigger, the companies get bigger, the role itself becomes less technical. You lose your Git privileges, like I lost mine. <laughs> um, you know, and it's more about uh, dealing with the product and the, being the technical evangelist about what, what kind of technologies and what approaches of, we should be using to develop the technology and the products to support the business. It becomes more of a business and technology fusion role, um, which becomes an interesting position and much more coupled with product. EQ is more important. One last question. The project management fundamental how to look here into how you're doing it. It's just that we just learned that in the process. I mean, if you're like before going into each step of the project, you study those theories for project management, for project breakdown, like team management, how to manage different people based on theories. You study the books for theories, or just learn that by practice, just wanted to know. Just for myself, because like each week I put some time to study those things in theory. And then apply that in our like a startup conflict. I wanted to know if it's an efficient way to apply those strategies in theory and practice, or just learn that by going on in the process. Yeah, I'm clear in the question. Or yeah, I mean, for me, I learn on the job and seek people who have done it and have evidence of doing that. And just, I mean, you literally told me early on, just use Jira and make sure every commit is tagged, and we just did that. And then it's working, and there's pros and cons to everything, but. Um, I didn't spend too much time in analysis paralysis of trying to pick the best thing. It's just action and, and get it going because you don't have the luxury of time. I, uh, 
So you're going to learn from a whole bunch of different sources, whether it's other people, yeah. books, etc. I think my only caution when you go to implement things or whatever is that you don't just implement them wholesale, right? Nothing drives me more crazy than people who are like, oh, we're agile. We do all of the things that are in agile. And they're like, why do you do standups? I don't know. We're supposed to, right? So like, right? So yeah, part of the framework. Right? Yeah, exactly. So I, I think, you know, when you're reading, it's very easy, especially when you're early and you don't necessarily know. You're like, well, they say we should do this, so we'll do it. Um, and that's fine. You can experiment, have fun, learn things. We did tons of stuff when I was at Velocity that we knew we weren't supposed to do entirely just to learn, right? Um, but at least know that's the framework and then reevaluate. Don't just do things because someone told you to or yeah. do. I, I learned a lot of this by observing, like by seeing how teams work in smaller companies, bigger companies. and. And like, I think the, the way we do things today is a combination of our past experiences and we've got the goods and we remove the things we didn't like and we're trying to improve on the process. One last time, I'd just like to give uh, the presence to the speakers and maybe take a quick photo because I'm such a big fan of all of you. Uh, so thank you for coming to Toronto.